Welcome. This is session two of Embodied Education, and we're looking at maintaining muscle. And we're going to start with some questions from last session. And also, um, I put Trina in the hot seat and asked her about a study that really impressed me that she presented on literally like probably a year and a half ago. Um, and we're going to we're going to review some of what we did last time, how it applies to muscle, go over that study and then dive into more um, science around maintaining muscle. So I'll hand it over to Trina. And thank you all for being here again. Thank you, Allison. Yeah, thank you guys. Okay, so build better bone. I'm just going to skip through. Let's see if this will let me skip through quickly. And I'm going to get right into the question that we had regarding um, kyphosis and remodeling kyphosis, because that's really juicy topic, right? So um, it basically goes hand in hand with the study that I was going to share with you guys, but I'm just going to pause here with neutral spinal alignment. So it's important to know you guys that actually neutral spinal alignment is super culturally dependent. Like in other parts of the world, neutral spine is actually no kyphotic curvature down into like a cervical curve and a lumbar curve. And they call that a J spine. Um, interesting, right? Like, so in the United States or in the West, we tend to have more of this S curve. So thoracic kyphosis is goes together with osteoporosis, like peanut butter and jelly. Um, and a, and a, a small amount of thoracic kyphosis is healthy, normal, question mark, possibly. No thoracic kyphosis is also honestly healthy and normal, just different from what we typically see in the West. So as we come forward, a bunch of people in, in physical uh, medicine have actually studied, okay, so we know that extra kyphosis kind of contributes to bone fatigue, not, not kind of, excuse me, let me change my language absolutely contributes to bony fatigue and compression fractures, right? Especially in women post-menopause. So there's this huge curiosity about reducing this angle, which is the kyphotic curve. This angle doesn't really matter, but it's measured in terms of a Cobb angle in our um, fields of medicine. And we'll do it usually using an X-ray um, just exactly like this. And then we'll measure the angle of curvature. So it turns out that we have really good information about what changes this angle. Um, there's beautiful work from 2017, um, Wendy Katzman at UCSF. Um, the, the studies that I put in this reference slide are kind of the, the studies that I'll speak about today. So if you have more questions, go back to the slide. This is always a good place to go back to, to dig into for more information. And um, the question that Allison asked about is connected with that reduction in kyphosis. So this is kind of the grandfather, this Mickelson-Sanaki study from 1984. Um, it's kind of the, the grandfather of how we start to know what movements change that bony curvature of the middle back. And, um, and so in their research, they had, I, I just reread it. it, it was done really a long time ago, like between the years of 1969 to 1983, they collected data and they would never, ever be able to run a study like this anymore. It seems like somebody just did it out of their clinic. There's a lot of flaws to the study. I have to say that right out of the front, right out of the gate, because like they don't describe um, how long these women practice these exercises or how often, right? Um, so the methods are a little unclear and unshaky, but basically what they did was they did it randomly. They sort of like, based on the preference of the physical therapist or the preference of the doctor that was working, they put women into three categories of post-menopausal osteoporotic hyperkyphotic women into three categories of exercise. The first category of exercise was considered to be extension-based exercises. So in the extension-based exercise, they did a little bit of massage. They did a little bit of lifting training, like don't bend your back when you're lifting. And then they instructed the women to do these two exercises, sitting in a chair, pulling the shoulder blades back together. And then this sort of like what I would call like a modified Shalambasana position, prone over the pillow, pulling the shoulder blades together. This was, these were the two exercises the extension group did. 
Oh, sorry, guys. My computer doesn't want to forward that way. <laughs> now, these are the two exercises the flexion group did. So something fascinating to note here is um, that I was thinking about when I was rereading this. These are both under high amounts of load. And I'm going to back my slides up a little bit so you guys can know what I mean when I say that. But so these were the flexion exercises. The flexion group got these two exercises, plus a little bit of massage, plus some of that ergonomic training when they were lifting. There was a third group of um, women, and those women got both of these exercise groups of exercises. So they were called the flexion and extension group. They did both extension, the two extension exercises, these two exercises, little bit of massage, little bit of ergonomic training. And then these were the published uh, findings of this study. So they followed these women and they tested their spines about a year and a half out of doing these exercises and having this intervention. Again, the methods aren't very clear, so we don't know, you know, how often they did it. You know, there's, there's some information that, that we just don't know or how much, how many repetitions that they did. Um, but basically what was found from this, uh, um, research was that, 84% of the women in the extension group, only extension, doing those two simple exercises a year and a half out, 1.4 years out of their exercise bout, had no further wedging. Wedging is that misshapen, misshaping of the vertebra to get smaller in the front and larger in the back. They had no further wedging, no further loss of height, one and a half years out. The flexion group, only 11% had no further wedging, no further loss of height about one and a half years out. So the extension and flexion group had this total mixed bag, right? Which is kind of interesting. And there was an interesting question about this uh, at the uh, last practice, which I can kind of speak to just based on what we know now. So the flexion group, 89% of the flexion base, the old school sit-ups, the sitting in a chair and for forward folding had 89% had further loss of vertebral height, height, further wedging, smaller in the front, larger in the back, wedging shape of their vertebra. Isn't that wild? So, and then 53% of the flexion and extension group. So when we're thinking about postmenopausal women, when we have osteoporosis, when we have lower bone density, when we're at risk for compression fractures, we, we not only do we want to be extension based, but we probably want to stop flexing our spines under load, which was a really important distinction that Allison made when she was when she was uh, answering that question from somebody. Like, if you are on your side, if you are on your back, and your head and your feet are on the ground, if you are um, um, supported in some other way, then flexion probably is more appropriate, like a cat cow quadruped position. If you are sitting in a chair or if you are doing an old school sit up, let's see if I can back this up, that gets into huge compression forces. So this graph, I put this in here for this specific reason, because this is something we don't think about a lot, like the loads that our spine is under in any given movement during the day, sitting our spines are just under a ton more pressure than they are standing, even just upright, beautiful sitting. This kind of flexed posture sitting that the, the people in the experiment were given is like massive loads of flexion, <laughs> massive loading of the vertebra and massive flexion at the same time. An old school sit up, massive loading of the vertebra and massive flexion at the same time. So, it, you know, there's something about this combination of compression loading along with flexion that the bone just does not like anymore. And so there is something really like healing and helpful about reducing compression forces if you're going to be moving your body into flexion position. That is what I would share from that. And Allison, was that kind of, was that, was that um, kind of clear? Yeah. Did you have any questions about that? That was fantastic. And um, I'm going to um, throw another wild card in here. Forgive me. Um, can you go back to the seated and the flexion exercises? One of the things I want to point out is that often when people feel like their back is tight, what do they do? Yeah. Right. Um, they want to stretch. A lot of times I have had more 
intense conversations than I can count with clients who are having spine issues, who want to hang in Uttanasana or lay around in child's pose and do this kind of like floppy flexion stuff. And it's so hard because it gives temporary relief, but it does not bring long-term benefit or healing. Um, And then the, you know, the kind of old school crunch, you know, one of the unfortunate things I've seen over the years is someone has back issues and they go get some medical attention. They're told, okay, you have a weak core. You need to strengthen your core, but they're not given much else. And then people think that quote unquote, strong core is crunches, um, which we again see isn't excellent for the vertebra and the spine. And I think one of the ways conversation is shifting around core is that it has so much more to do with the deep core, interabdominal pressure, upright posture, um, even like the respiratory and pelvic floor diaphragm. I'll leave it there for now. Um, but the, can you go back to the extension too? So I want to point out here that locust is hard. And a lot of the poses we're going to do today are just hard because they're strengthening the things that are weak, which means you've got to go into the things that are weak. So they have they don't have that immediate payoff, but they have long, massive long-term benefits. And then the squeezing of the shoulders together, again, it's kind of like the last thing you want to do when the, the upper back is achy. And I hear more and more people telling me their upper back is achy because probably all the time sitting at home, working at home on the computer. So again, it does not bring that momentary, temporary relief, but it does bring those long-term benefits. And then the last thing I'll say is one of the things that impressed me about this study, and again, we don't know how long, how often they were doing them, but, but I think we can all agree that this isn't a lot to ask. This isn't a 90-minute yoga practice or even a 40-minute yoga practice. It's simple things that we can do, again, to retrain the muscles and the bones and the way the body is communicating to itself about movement. And I think that, to me, is why I loved this study is I was like, oh, that's so hopeful and helpful. And I hope we all see this and kind of say, okay, some of what I might want to do in terms of like immediate relief is very counterproductive to what I need in the long term. And what I need in the long term may not be super fun um, and maybe challenging and difficult. But again, it's not an hour of it or even 40 minutes of it. It's like these exercises that we can do on a regular basis. And then the practices we're doing are really about these types of like bite-sized movements, like Pick a few that really work for you and use them. Yeah. So that my big can I ask, thing. Yeah. Sorry, can I, I'm going to jump in and ask the question, Allison. Um, so in that forward fold, which is flexion, and um, why, why does that compress the spine? If that's what it does. Can I answer if that? You're, Oh, yes. Please. Thank you. So this is interesting because with a forward fold, the the plumb line falls anterior, right? So this is the posterior. This is the anterior. And in that forward fold position, this tissue is getting compressed excessively. What we're saying already happens with the presence of osteoporosis and demineralization is that these anterior vertebral bodies are already excessively compressed. So they're okay. already, it's like a checking account that's already at zero. And then you, you try to write a $10,000 check. You ain't got okay. it. <laughs> so that's what, that's what creates this vertebral, this really unique, notice how this fracture is happening this way, sort of horizontally across the vertebral mm-hmm. body. That's a very unique form of fatigue. It's very different from other types of bone fracture. Does that make sense? Goes back. Yes. To Thank physics. you. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. Plumb line this way. Extension does the opposite. Extension forces buffer that, buffer that progression. And Wendy Katzman's work from 2017, which we're not going to go over. I have this hour long presentation. You guys, if you guys are super interested in bone, you can go on my website and download this. I have it 
um, on my recordings, but this um, Wendy Katzman site uh, is really, really fantastic because in 2017, she took women three times a week through this practice. Like Allison was saying, it's super simple stuff, super simple. The whole practice takes about 25 minutes. And she, oops, excuse me, long-term noticed this thoracic kyphosis angle change and like a year out, people had reduction in kyphotic curvature. They had reduction in, um, they had improved bone density scores. They had less of a propensity for that compression fracture and for that fatigue. So extend your bones, <laughs> extend your bones in your back. <laughs> yeah. And Jen, that um, chart that Trina showed with the load is really important for understanding why certain things are riskier than others. Doing uh, doing that on your side, low risk. Quadruped is about the same, low risk. Doing that position sitting, much greater risk. Interesting, yeah? All right, should we move on? Or does anyone else have any questions? Or does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah, I think let's roll with on the muscle, which will dovetail nicely into all of this. Okay, so I'm going to stop my share so I can get out of here and change my change my thingamajiggy. Ah, there we go. Muscle. Okay, share my screen. Okay, so onward and upward to muscle. Um, I love this image for muscle. I think muscle is probably my favorite of all tissues. It is so exciting. And also because my undergrad is in exercise physiology, probably. So I've been talking and thinking about muscle um, <laughs> for such a long time. Um, oops, excuse me. Sometimes my computer doesn't like that. Okay. So today we're going to look at what are the unique characteristics that make muscle muscle? What is the role of muscle in our body? Where does muscle memory actually reside? Which I think is a very juicy and interesting question. Um, and then how do we grow and or maintain muscle? I'm going to make the argument that maintenance is actually growth. I'm going to make that argument. I'm going to stick to it. I've thought about it a lot. It, it's like a retirement account, you, you know, and then um, just start to explore what your thoughts and biases might be around muscle. For some reason, Muscle is a very highly, um, it, it's, it, people usually have a lot of um, emotion around muscle. I think because we can see it, you know? So these are some of the myths that I encounter a lot. I mentioned this one last time. I grow muscle easily. Um, as long as I can get something done, that means I'm strong enough for it. Muscle can be grown or maintained if I put on a machine, if somebody does something to me, if I do something passive. Um, another common myth I, I hear, if I use resistance or weights, my muscles will get bulky and they will have poor quality or not function well. Um, because I have never been able to do something, that means I will never be able to do it. I hear, uh, I hear all of these kinds of um, comments often. None of them are true. <laughs> So think of muscle instead, like this retirement account that we have, we build up the most in our 20s and 30s, just like bone. And then after about age 30, it's actually depreciating. And if we're not building in, just like a retirement account, losing steam over time because of inflation, if you're not putting more into your account, building interest, accruing interest, then you are losing at that retirement game. It's the same with muscle. Um, Muscle loss isn't even considered pathological. It's the only tissue I know of that losing it is considered like a natural part of aging, begins really early at about age 30. How many of us, like all of myself and all of my friends started to get stuff like tendonitis, itis, bursitis, itises in our 30s? I went from, you know, being able to do triathlons without thinking about it to like really having to think about it, <laughs> really having to train. And, and I think a lot of that looking back is because I was starting to experience loss of my muscle mass. Um, my question to all of us is why are we not using muscle mass as a marker of health? Like 
It's the cheapest, easiest thing to do. The machines that test muscle, we're going to see them. They cost like nothing. We should be testing certain muscles at the doctor and charting that over time because loss of muscle is connected with not only all of these orthopedic pathologies, but loss of quality of life and loss of longevity as we age. So just a really quick reminder about bioplasticity that the, it's like the ability of all of our cells to alter structure and function when we change our input or our stimulus, when we change what we're exposing ourselves to. Allison has been talking about this a lot in this class. And some of this, just acknowledge, may be cognitive, may be psychological. Some of this is physical. Um, so muscle is my absolute favorite tissue because you know, it, again, it's such a strong predictor of how we will age, how we will be able to live independently or not. Um, our muscle strength is really highly correlated to the progression of different orthopedic pathologies, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, all of the itises, basically. Um, muscle, nerve, and bone are completely intimately related. There's no ability to kind of disconnect one from the other. You can see in this person's leg how limited, and I don't know what this person has going on. They may have had a stroke. They may have something else going on, but you can see you know, how really they're not able to support themselves. They're not even able to weight bear in this photo on this side. Muscle improves every single aspect of our function our balance, our proprioception, our ability to get up and down off the floor, our ability to regulate blood pressure, uh, blood sugar levels, everything, anything you can think of. Skeletal muscle is super helpful. For a long time, the liver was always taxed as like moving the glycogens, you know, moving sugars into our um, muscle to be stored or moving it into the liver. But think about how much more skeletal muscle we have than liver, right? We have so many more skeletal muscle cells. They're much more important. This is like a really fancy machine. And I've only ever seen these at like UCSF, USC. Um, um, one of uh, a, a professor's um, lab. And so they're expensive, but you know, they're like four grand. In the world of medicine, they're not that expensive. If somebody had a really good, this is a business idea, you could just buy one of these and start testing everybody and do a preventative model of medicine. Um, PTs don't have this kind, we don't have this kind of bucks. So we don't even have usually handheld dynamometers. This is a big part about strength is that it's not well tested right now in the clinic, you know, we use manual muscle tests and I teach everybody in my classes to learn manual muscle tests for themselves to start to get a sense of where they fall on gradation. Am I strong enough for walking? Am I strong enough for running? Um, because there's markers that we can check in with. But again, manual muscle tests only go up to about 70% max contraction. I just looked at a rock climber, um, his shoulders on uh, yesterday, and I wasn't able to like fully accurately assess because he tested, you know, high on everything, but I know he had weakness there. So again, just a really quick reminder, there's actually, so muscle's a type of animal tissue, and there's actually these three types of muscles. So we're going to hone in on skeletal muscle. Cardiac muscle and smooth muscle have their own features with which are differentiated and, and different from skeletal muscle, and you won't see one muscle type crossover to the other. But within skeletal muscle, we have three different muscle types that can cross over. I don't know how much we'll get to talk about that today, but... So myo, sarco, you'll see these things. There's a lot of verbiage when it comes to any kind of biological tissue, but especially with muscle, these two sort of indicate muscle. So sarcomere or, um, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that a lot today. Muscle is excitable. It's contractile. So excitable, uh, a nerve, we're going to see a nerve impulse can create muscle contraction. And then that it's contractile, it can shorten. It's extensible, it can lengthen. It's elastic, it can rebound back to its initial um, position. All of these qualities are really important to muscle. And I like to say that muscle kind of has this ability to elongate when it stretches, to shorten when it contracts. And then actually it has like this broadening that it does when it's stretches where it sort of gets flatter and thinner over the bones. And all of those qualities are really important, those three-dimensional qualities. It's mostly water, 75%. So make sure you're hydrated. And then, um, and then the bits that are solid are predominantly protein, which makes sense. And we're going to look at these two specialized proteins today, actin and myosin. They're kind of the powerhouse of muscle cell. 
So a lot of us think, you know, when we talk about like muscle memory, you know, how you ride a bike, how you walk, um, how you hit a tennis ball, these things are actually part of housed in where all memory is housed within the brain, within the central nervous system. This is um, the motor cortex and this is the sensory cortex. It's these specialized neurons that sort of help to communicate the with the nervous system that runs down from the brain through our spinal cord to both supply outgoing messages. That's what they're showing with the green initiating here and then running down or to receive messages. Now, this is the somatic nervous system. The other nervous system branch that we have is the autonomic. And when I mentioned the cardiac and the smooth muscle, that's actually controlled by a different system. So our somatic nervous system is what sort of houses that muscle memory. So muscle memory is actually housed in neurologic tissue. It's housed in our brain. It's housed in our spinal cord. It's housed in our motor neurons that descend from the spinal cord out to our periphery. Yeah. And this is just another way of saying that this is a way of looking at the somatosensory cortex, which is that specialized strip in the cortex that receives all that incoming ascending info. So this is a trippy thing. So the somatosensory cortex has a map. The motor cortex has a map. Notice how these maps differ and these maps are changeable. And it's important to understand that you can change your, in fact, only you can change your maps. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get into the pain um, topic next week. But, you know, after you have pain for a period of time, these maps actually changed and they get kind of smudged and they'll either grow or body parts can fall off of them completely. And I want to show that today for all of us um, with an area that's a little bit difficult to control. So if a body part isn't on either this sensory or this motor map, then you can't have hope of having control over it but you can rebuild connection, reestablish connection and thereby build control over it. Amazing, right? And so think about like in stroke rehabilitation when you know huge parts of this are lost for people and then they can really undergo this rehabilitation process where they relearn these maps. So everyone look down at your feet. Hopefully we're all barefoot. And what we're gonna try is Says, we're going to try hallux abduction, which is big toe abduction. So if you look at your feet and you look at your big toes, I want you to keep your big toes on the ground and try to move them away from your second toe in towards the center, in towards one another, and then relax and try that maybe two or three times. And you should feel that that's a muscle that sort of runs from this distal part of our big toe down along the inner edge and has attachments um, back into the heel. So we're shortening this way. And if you can't do that, you are in very good company. Most adults, this is a part of our body that falls completely off the map of our brain when we have to learn how to do taxes and our job and everything else. But bringing this back on is really important. <laughs> it's really important. So part of what our brain does is organize. It's like, okay, say you want to fire up your biceps and pull your purse or your groceries really close to your body. Then you have to turn off this muscle on the other side. So we have a muscle that is sort of generating the movement. And then the opposite muscle, the neuron will have to come in. The neuron will have to stimulate this muscle and tell it to fire. And another neuron will have to come in and inhibit this muscle. And when we see conditions like Parkinson's or post-stroke or with spasticity, whenever people say I have spasticity, unless you have a neurologic condition, you do not have spasticity. Spasticity happens when that inhibition usually stops. So there'll be a co-contraction where we don't want it. So already, I mean, the picture is pretty complex, right? Of how muscle gets excited, how it works, all the things that have to happen well, just for you to like reach out and grab a pen. Um, something about muscle is that it's kind of like the Goldilocks. All the tissues we see are kind of like Goldilocks. They like, they like the middle. <laughs> they do not like being excessively shortened or lengthened. 
They do not like generating a force that is too great or too little. They don't like being used too much or not being used at all. They like the porridge just in the middle path. This is really hard for our adult brains to wrap around because our adult brains have learned a lot more is better. And a big part of my mantra in my classes is meet yourself where you're at. If you meet yourself with a tougher challenge than where you're at, you're going to your muscle's going to be really pissed off at you. There's going to be something that goes awry. So again, just a little quick um, reminder, you know, the function of muscle is so varied, produces movement, maintains our posture. A huge thing that muscle does is resist gravity. So when you see older adults that are walking forward, that's actually weakness on the back of the body, not being able to move their body weight against gravity. Stable, it stabilizes our joints, right? So it keeps us from generate from developing some of those osteoarthritic conditions through bad movement patterns, it produces heat, like through shivering, it insulates us. It compresses and stimulates our bones, which we talked about a lot last time. And then along with our liver, it helps with our glycogen storage, which is hugely impactful when we talk about things like blood sugar. Whenever somebody talks about blood sugar with me, I always start looking at their muscle mass. I'm like, what is your muscle like? <laughs> I think it's a really important thing to start to follow in ourselves. So um, you can kind of check out all these different shapes. Muscle has amazingly different shapes. Like this is more like a sphincter muscle. Um, this shape is capable of generating a lot more force than just like a parallel shape. And you can kind of see these like sheathy long fibers of the abs. They're not going to produce as much force as like the pecs, which are broader and tighter and like multi-pennated. You can see when you do cadaver dissection and the more you get into anatomy, you can just look at a muscle and anticipate what it's supposed to do. I remember when I first saw the hamstrings on a cadaver, I was like, oh, how no wonder like our hamstrings are just floating in space <laughs> our hamstrings are like this our quadriceps are like this our glutes are built like this our glutes are like our primary generators our gastroc and soleus basically all the muscles on the back of our body plus our quadriceps are built in these beautiful like multiple they look like feathers and so that has this multi-directional force and stability so much more force production there and then when we kind of get a little deeper into the structure of skeletal muscle, this can be kind of a little bit overwhelming, but just start to think of like those Russian dolls, like, you know, bigger and then getting smaller, getting smaller, getting smaller. Um, and I think this is really important to look at just to start to understand um, the beautiful ways in which muscle communicates. Muscle sort of, you know, attaches into bone for the most part at tendons and then is surrounded and kind of continuous with the outer layer of bone, which is called the periosteum. It's not on here, but it's there. And um, there's an outer layer of this whole big muscle belly. This is the whole muscle belly, say, of like the biceps. And that's called the epimysium. And then we look, and if you cut the muscle in half and through and say there's no bone inside of it, and then we can start, or there's no bone adjacent to it, you can start to see that it's kind of divided like an orange. And so at every single layer, we have this like smaller connective tissue and then smaller bundles, which these little bundles we call fascicles. And within fascicles live muscle fibers or muscle cells. And so look at how many cells are in each of these fascicles, how many fascicles are in each of these giant muscles. Now, the reason why I wanted to point this out is because at every layer, at the cell layer, there's, there's a really specialized membrane. At the fascicle layer, there's a specialized membrane, paramecium, specialized membrane, epimysium, specialized membrane, going all the way back to the tendon. So the function, one of the main functions of muscle is to contract. And when it contracts, this connective tissue kind of communicates across the whole of the muscle. And and it's not that if you just fire one cell, you fire all. Like we're going to look, we have the ability to just fire one or two cells or make it much smaller. But there is this general communication that sort of projects contraction all the way from the cell level through the global whole muscle belly through the tendon to the bone. Amazing.
amazing. So amazing when you think about it. So when you get deeper, like if you, this muscle fiber, this muscle cell is just like any other cell, but they're kind of in these long spindles. And within these muscle fibers, there's all of these little myofilaments. Remember I said 20, you know, 75% of muscle is water, 25, 20% is protein. These little myofilaments are like these long stringy, um, tubular, they look the same as those filaments almost. Um, this is all like at the level of an electron microscope. <laughs> and then you can start to see proteins, these little long bands of proteins. And so at these long bands of proteins, this is where the muscle contraction actually happens. This unit is called a sarcomere. And, um, and I just wanted to show this, like, this is at this very small electron microscope protein level where a muscle contraction happens, but then it reverberates out based on how much the neuron is communicating with those, those proteins. So um, this is again, kind of like a cartoon of how the neuron communicates with muscle cells. And we'll see like in the hand, this might only have a neuron might only meet like one or two muscle fibers. It'll be a lot more small because we need a lot more fine movement at some place like the back or the glutes where muscles work together in groups or around the ribs. Then we'll see that motor units actually supply a bunch of different muscle cells at the same time. So a motor unit is just that motor neuron, which they have that kind of yellow globular thing. And then it's communicating right at the muscle cells. And that is the excitable part. So that message comes from the brain, passes down through the spinal cord, is potentiated by different uh, electrical currents, believe it or not, along action potentials down to this direct relationship between the nerve and the cells. And then in the presence of calcium, and in the presence of an excited neuron, a contraction can happen. So um, yeah, just to point out the trunk and thigh have very large motor units. One nerve might you know, connect with many, 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 many cells. And then like the eye and the hand have really small motor units because they need that sort of fine control. So the mechanism of contraction, I kind of already said, but the message travels from the brain to the muscular system, triggering these chemical reactions along the way. The chemical reactions lead to the muscle fibers reorganizing themselves in a way that shortens, and that's the contraction piece. And then when the signal is no longer present, that whole chemical process and electrical process just reverses, chemicals just clear right out, and the muscle fibers, because they're elastic, go back to the position that they were in previously. Totally amazing. I don't want to talk about this too much. This is what's happening at the very level of the proteins. This is one of those small proteins binding to the other protein, and it actually kind of hooks in. And it's like it's like people rowing, if you've watched rowers, hooking in and pulling past. And that they call it a sliding filament theory, that ratcheting past that I skip is what goes from normal rest, resting length of a muscle to shortening. That's how it's called the sliding filament theory. Pretty freaking incredible. When, and it, they call it a theory, even though we know that's what happens, like, you know, how scientists are like, we don't say anything's really truly uh, done and dusted until like, we can't find another possibility, but this is what happens during muscle contraction. And so similar to bone, like the way that bone repairs is through compression, through challenge, the way that skeletal muscle grows and repairs itself is the same through challenge. The only time that muscle cells can grow is when they're stressed with a specific amount of exercise. And this results in that gentle tearing apart. When they contract, there's a gentle tearing that happens. And then this whole beautiful inflammatory process comes in to repair those cells and make them more robust. Delayed onset muscle soreness is a sign of positive inflammation due to those stress and those little micro tears. If we're not meeting ourselves at the appropriate challenge, if we're working harder, we don't know how to meet ourselves, we can't feel our body, too much stretching, too much contraction, then what's happening is we're tearing apart and we tear apart too far to actually have healing. If a muscle is never stressed, then atrophy occurs, not just atrophy of the muscle. Think about that poor neuron, atrophy of that poor neuron, atrophy all the way back up through the spinal cord to the brain, to the map of the brain like that big toe exercise. Isn't that wild? 
So um, we're not going to talk about these mechanisms, but there are a couple mechanisms through which muscle actually protects itself. There's different neurologic mechanisms, which are pretty incredible. And I really wanted to go through this today. I don't want to take too much time on it. I'm just going to say this quickly and pass right through it. Something that was so beautiful with Allison's practice on Monday was that we got progressively more challenged. We went specifically in this logical progression. Something I think happens so much with movement is we don't progress logically. I first thought of this in like 2011 or 2012 when I was working with young athletes. It got stuck in my brain. I couldn't stop thinking of it. It was like something getting stuck in your teeth. And then I, I went to a workshop this year with a PhD in biomechanics. And you know what he put up on one of the screens? This exact thing. So isometric means that we're contracting a muscle without actually moving the body through space or moving a joint. Um, that is the easiest variation when we are non-weight bearing of a movement. And then isometric or isokinetic means we're moving and we're non-weight bearing. That would be like a phase two. Phase three, we're isometric or static. We're weight bearing. We're on two legs. That is a phase three of a difficulty. Phase four difficulty, we're moving. We're weight bearing. We were using two legs. This is like a sit to stand or a push up. And then we go back to single leg now. So static or isometric, weight bearing, one leg. This is where walking is at, you guys. I just wanted to demo this. This is what, like phase seven or something. Most adults are not strong enough in our hips. We're not strong enough for walking. And then from walking, you get up to build the strength for running. So progressively load muscle. Do not be shy. Do not increase greatly. I'm going to talk about this next time uh, when I get more specific into muscle, but this is a very general exercise prescription of how to build muscle. Um, oops, excuse me. Sorry, guys. We want to keep the reps low and we want to keep the intensity high. You can't start here. You have to start with higher repetitions, lower intensity, and then slowly build the intensity so slowly so that your muscles are repairing the whole time. So, you know, again, skeletal muscle is really being lost across our lifespan, specifically the kind of muscle that generates power is being lost across our lifespan. So start early. It's never too early to start building muscle, especially in your glutes, especially in your calves, because those are the muscles that hold us up against, especially in your low back. Those are the muscles that hold us up against gravity. So make sure you're using good positioning, good biomechanics, mechanics, you're working at an appropriate level, you're loading progressively, you're not loading willy-nilly, you're working, I used to load without thinking of it, you're working out at a higher intensity with lower repetitions, you have clear afferent sensory signaling, like Allison was talking about, you can feel where your bones are in space, you can feel where your muscles are in space. And then again, just to notice, take thought, take stock of your thoughts about your strengthening, about strength, about muscle, and then know what your goals are. Okay, guys, we're getting close to the end. I'm going to skip through this one. I just want to make a mention of what is not building skeletal muscle. Running 100 miles is not building skeletal muscle. Hiking for eight miles is not building skeletal muscle. Anything that you can do for hours, rest assured, is not building skeletal muscle. Swimming, hiking, riding your bike, you name it. What is building skeletal muscle is strength training. Some short fast, shouldn't take more than 20 or 30 minutes, and then you're out kind of thing. Um, another thing that's really important is that you're working with somebody to learn how to strength train, how to use your posterior and proximal muscles. And then I just want to make a mention here, because I made a mention last time to make sure that you, if you're unclear, you are working with somebody to help you with the right kind of nutrients to make sure that you can build, because all of these tearing down processes require a building up and that requires a lot of nutrition. So a little quick review and summary, muscles elastic, it's excitable, it's extensible, it's contractile. It creates motion, it helps to balance blood sugar, helps metabolism, helps create new blood supply, helps with everything you can think about, generating movement, holding us upright, posture. Muscle memory actually resides in the nervous system and maintaining and growing muscle is a lifelong pursuit and project. It's never done. It's never like you get to the place and you're like, I'm good, I'm out. 
So um, that was all I wanted to say today about muscle. I'm going to do a longer muscle exploration that'll be about an hour long, I think in June. Um, but today, I think this is a good starting point. And these are some of the references that I use, just some more um, basic anatomical and physiologic references. So I will stop my share. What questions do we have for Trina? <laughs> Trina, I remember last year you talked if you wanted to work with a PT and your um, postmenopausal. Was it a wellness check? What, it was something you said to go to your PT to have them check for your strength and everything. I couldn't remember the name of it, though. Yeah, I would just communicate with somebody and say, you know, I'm not dealing with an active injury. I just like to come in and have a general assessment of my strength, my balance, whatever your um, interest is, uh, let them know. Every PT would be so excited to receive you. <laughs> We'd love to get into the place of prevention rather than after the fact. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. Um, this is just in regards to your thoughts on uh, weight-bearing exercise versus just like body weight-bearing exercise. So like a Pilates approach versus a like um weights approach or strength training yeah 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 i think that strength training might be possible in pilates but i don't think it's the goal of pilates mm. and um does that make sense it so much sense just like yoga not as exercise <laughs> Yoga, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you agree with that, Alice? I'll let Allison feel that. <laughs> yeah, I always, I often talk about not using yoga as exercise, but a way to build body awareness and alignment. And when we, it starts to be a jazzercise thing, we lose a lot of benefits. I'll put it that way. But, you know, aim is everything, right? Aim is everything. Amen. Aim is everything, right? That's helpful. Thank you, Trina. Thank you. <laughs> Trina, you said that it's never too early to start. Or too late to start. That's my next question. Because you hear this about, oh, after menopause, after you're really, you know, you're in menopause, um, postmenopausal, I guess, you can't build muscle. Or it's never going to build muscle the way. Is that a is that just a myth? It is much harder to build muscle. Just like a, think of the retirement account. You start saving for retirement at 60 or 70. It's a different experience than if you start in your 20s. It's, it is easier to start younger, just like learning a language, just like anything else. You can start late though. And why not start late? It's never a bad time to start. I've started strength training programs just this week with people in who are 86 and, and somebody who's 91. They're not going to build muscle at the same level that somebody is in their 20s. Mm -hmm but you can get there. You can get what you need. Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could, why not try your, why not try? Yeah. Why not try. I have a question if no, if there's still time. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely lost at the very end. You just threw me when you're like all those exercisey things that I do all the time, running and hiking and walking like what that doesn't build Muscle, I'm just like, what the heck? I don't astounding. get astounding. I mean, astounding, right? Those are all examples of cardiovascular exercises that build your heart muscle. They improve the collateralization of your blood vessels. They improve the extensibility of your blood vessels. They do not increase your muscle cells. They do not increase your strength parameters. I have tested, you guys, I can tell you, how many times I have tested people that can run a hundred miles in the hills, in the Sierras at crazy elevations, and they don't have enough butt strength to stand upright. And they have bad backs and they have bad hips and their knees hurt like hell. So it's not building strength to do cardio. You have to do strength to do cardio. That would, that's my mantra. Like Allison says, not yoga for fitness, not cardio for strength training. And strength training is required to do more cardio. This is something that nobody tells us. You can't continue to do the hiking, cycling, running, swimming, ice surf, whatever your, your jam is, unless you build strength for it. You will develop itises. You will slowly degrade your strength. You will not be strong enough for it. Wow. Okay. 
That's a whole new way of looking at the world. <laughs> it's 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 like 99% of my clients when I was up in Marin were not strong enough for their activities. Wow. Yeah, and that's the type of information that can be alarming. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, and sometimes when I get when I've gotten um what I'll call truth serum like that, I spend about like a week or two being really upset about it, angry or depressed about it, maybe grieving a little bit. Um, and then I'm like, okay, well, good thing I know, (laughs) you know, and now I have something to do about it. And the thing about like, is it too late? I want to say this too, like the worst thing you can do is give into that story, regardless of the gains you can make. Why not believe that, that something better is possible. And it's, it's one of those things that I think be very wary of those types of stories or just like throwing in the towel, um, because it it prevents you from doing what you can. Totally. I couldn't agree more. Do you have time for another question? Hi. Um, muscle soreness. Is it just lactic acid? Is there what's, can you talk a little bit about muscle soreness? Yeah, I kind of mentioned DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. So muscle soreness when we build muscle, we're ripping those cells apart, those small proteins apart. And just like when we rupture and tear little bony parts, then there's an inflammatory process to that. Our our inflammatory system has to like get called in and through this cascade of these beautiful inflammatory markers, the old proteins that have been torn are removed, broken down, upcycled by the body, and then new fibers can be laid in. And so delayed onset muscle soreness is relative to that cellular healing, that inflammation, and not relative to lactic acid, which is a byproduct of anaerobic training, which moves out of your, I've heard lactic acid as the generator of soreness over and over. I don't know where that comes from. Lactic acid gets out of your system quickly. It's an anaerobic byproduct that gets out quickly. It's not sticking around like stuff doesn't do that in the body. Everything's getting moved all the time. So delayed onset muscle soreness or muscle soreness is from directly from tearing down and rebuilding. And some people tear down and rebuild and have that process and don't have any soreness. And some people have a tremendous amount of soreness. Just fascinating. So is strength building work something you can do on your own? Is there a guideline of what the methodology is to bringing this into your life in a way that makes sense with everything else you're up to in the world? (laughs) Well, I developed my favorite way of building strength. uh, And that's what I teach. That's what I teach. I, um, but yeah, I would recommend if you don't have a background in strength training, you find a, a reputable teacher, maybe Allison and I can put up some resources around that. Allison has some teachers that she really likes. Um, yeah, so you would probably want to work with somebody. Right. All right. That list would be most mm-hmm. appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll put that together. Um, and, you know, I love that you guys are asking that, right? And for me, at a certain point, the strength training work became like a non-negotiable because I wanted to keep, I, I could actually see my muscle mass I kind of joked that it was melting off my bones, but that would have felt, it was like one of those things you like look in the mirror and you're like, really? I knew this was going to happen and it's still shocking and disturbing. Um, And so I started doing strength training and I have friends who I've learned from. I had a partner who was a personal trainer, but um, the the other thing I'm going to say too is like, part of the reason I wanted to do this, because some of you are like, probably a little concerned because you've been doing yoga for 10, 15, 20 years, especially those of you who have been practicing with me. And that's actually why I wanted to bring this. I knew it was going to be disruptive. I knew it was going to be a little bit disturbing, but it's, but it's important, right? And yoga for all, for way too long has said, has emphasized flexibility and also said that this practice is all you need. And I don't agree with that, which obviously, you know, as someone who like works in that industry and and has for many years, you know, that that's something that like, there's a part of me that wishes it was true, but it's not. What my yoga practice has been extraordinary for is body awareness. 
And I had so many sports injuries um, that I don't know where I'd be without the practice. And I use the practice these days to build body awareness, to refine my alignment, to really get those mental maps going strong so I can do something like strength training. And I feel like it's more effective because my alignment is really sound. My awareness is really sharp. And then I can continue to do the things I really love, which, you know, hiking, walking the dog, um, you know, doing fun bend things. So, you know, just, just saying that, because I know, I know this is disruptive for some of you disturbing all those things. And it's, it's just really important, right? Because we've been told a different story. That's not true. It would be easier if it was. And I think a diversity of practices is really, really, really rich. And, um, what we see with science is it's not only rich, it's, it's essential. Right. I'm not disturbed. I'm just in uh, inquisitive about how how to meld this into you know what we're already what we've already accomplished and what we're doing. Good. Anyone disturbed? I was disturbed when I learned this stuff. Yeah, when I saw the sarcopenia stats, I was like, <gasps> try being seventy and finding this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never. Better late than never. All Trina, right. anything you would add? No, I just want to say thank you guys. Yeah, I think the more, you know, um, movement is play and even strength training is play. And it and it can it can be heavy or it can also be play, you know? And, and I actually just want to add one more quality to all this, which is like that whole beginner's thing of just like, you know, it's awesome to suck at something as an adult. It actually is awesome, <laughs> especially a movement something. I'm I'm constantly trying to learn. I'm taking like beginner's tennis right now. And it's so liberating just not being good at something. So if you're interested, you know, in, in building strength, then try and, and just let yourself not be good at it and just go slowly. And it's, you know, like Allison was saying. Yeah. So have fun. Can, fun. I, say, can I just make one uh, quick comment that I've been working with Trina for a number of years with bicycle accidents and back breaks and all this kind of stuff. And uh, her, her strength training for the last couple of years is a, a lot of this is so great that I've heard before. So Trina is great. And I know some of the people that are on this are in it, but I also want to say, Allison, I don't, I don't know you, but your last comments were so inspiring and I so respect what you're saying because you're coming from, I mean, it, Trina's classes that I've took over time are like trying to get body workers to understand exactly how this works. And listening to you, who I understand are, is a very good yoga instructor, are a very good yoga instructor, and saying basically about your work and what you're doing is that you're still refining, you're still learning, you're still getting what's going on and saying, we need this. My hat is really off to you. Maybe you've said this for years, but I'm just meeting you now. Man, I'm impressed. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. This this thing with Trina has been um, a goal. It's been almost like 10 years in the making. And, and for us to learn movement as kind of multidisciplinary and really smart and about sustainability and longevity and vitality and energy. So thank you. Um, okay. I've officially switched over mics and we're officially going to move. Um, here's what I want you to know about the movement. It's not your normal yoga asana, right? And that's intentional. And it's because, you know, to a certain degree, um, I think we can do better than what we often see in studio classes, to be quite honest. And, um, the postures you're going to do today build on what we did with the bone. And again, there's this intention to retrain and realign the body and also to start kind of considering these maps we have and how we move, what muscles we use when we move. For example, because I came from a sports background, my quads, my hip flexors were doing like everything. For some of you, your neck and your jaw tries to do everything for you. And I think one of the great therapeutic benefits of the yoga asana practice is getting better mental maps and muscle memory so that your all movements you do 
from walking to strength training to picking something up off the floor becomes more intelligent, more sustainable. Um, so you're going to see that intention with the practices. Again, it's about awareness. It's about alignment. We are going to do specific movements to engage hamstrings and glutes um, and rhomboids. So it's it's based off of some of the um, awareness of muscles required for flexion that we saw from that study. Like what's going to help us, or sorry, extension. What's going to help us get to that place of strong extension? Building those muscles so they're there for us. Again, this is a sequence. It'll be recorded. Um, and more than it being a rote practice, like what works for you? What lit up your body? And then how do you weave that into your day? Because it doesn't need to be a full class for you to do a little bit and get big, big, big results, which is what that study um, for me really, really highlighted and why I've really hung on to it as a movement teacher in that like, it doesn't need to be crazy. It does need to be wild. It doesn't need to be long. It doesn't need to be hard, but it does need to be consistent. Yeah. And it does need to be strategic. So um, with that in mind, we're going to transition into practice mode. So get to your mats again, have two blocks. I will be teaching from the mat. So I will not be able to see chat. If you need something, have questions, feel free to unmute yourself and chime in. 